Welcome to the Catholic Economics Podcast. I'm your host, Levi Russell, and today is October 7th, 2020. So I'm very happy to say that today I have uh, a very special guest, Dr. E. Michael Jones, on the show. And uh, Dr. E. Michael Jones, if you don't know, is, a, uh, is, is an author and is the publisher of the Culture Wars magazine. Uh, he is a, a prolific writer, and his most recent book is Logos Rising. Dr. Jones, I, uh, I wanted to have you on because uh, with all of this stuff going on with the coronavirus, also kind of just the last several years with Pope Francis, and, uh, and I guess it's very timely because we just had this encyclical come out a few days ago. What I wanted to talk to you about is what, what does your study of Logos and history have to tell us about obedience? And I guess maybe to start off, just give us a quick introduction about what, what Logos means and what, uh, what, 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 do we, what do you mean by this? What, is it, what, is it, what are you studying in history as you're, as you're examining this idea? I'm studying the development in the human mind, in human consciousness of the idea of ultimate reality. That uh, we, we, no matter as long as there has been mankind, we have a group of people who speak to each other and think about big issues and abstract issues. Uh, that is the definition of being a human being, even in the fallen state of uh, original sin after the fall. God, uh, the, the uh, original sin was a wound. It was not total depravity, as our separated brethren say. And even with our wounded intellect, the mankind was struggling to find out what is this ultimate reality. Uh, God is a term that has existed in every human language. God is always a father. He's portrayed as a father, and he's, he lives in the sky. And at that point, uh, you develop, uh, mankind takes his fallen intellect and tries to develop that, and he ends up with mythology, which is a dead end, okay? But it didn't end in a dead end, and we had uh, the Fusikoi, uh, the Greeks, who tried to say, you know, what is it? There, is it water? As Thales said, everything, you need water. Water is all around us. Uh, is it air? As Anaximenes said, uh, that's all around us. That's kind of a spiritual thing, too, because it's, you breathe it. It's spiritus. It's breath. You know what I mean? It's a, an analogy for the soul. You breathe your last when the soul leaves the body. So we're making progress here. Uh, and finally, um, uh, Heraclitus uh, came up with the idea that, of fire, which is deceptive because he also said, Logos. He started using the word logos and he applied to fire. Uh, a candle flame, for example, is always the same and it's always changing. Uh, Heraclitus said you can't, you can never step in the same river twice uh, because that river is always changing and it's always the same. There's a, there's a rock there, it creates an eddy. That eddy is always going to be there, even though the water is always changing. Right. Uh, this becomes applicable to the human being. Uh, thousands of years later, we understand now that uh, the body is not made up of, of matter in a way. Of course, it, there is matter here, but the matter gets replaced every seven years. 
And so that can't be the organizing principle. So what is it? It's an abstract principle that we call the soul or the form of the body. So that's what that book is about. Uh, at a certain point, uh, this, is, this has nothing to do with obedience. This is simply the mind trying to understand the world. Uh, if you want to talk about obedience, you have to talk about uh, the church. And the church mm -hmm. came into being uh, at the end of this discussion. This discussion was stalemated with uh, the dispute between Plato and Aristotle over what type, what God was. And then it got, it, it, not only it, uh, did it go harken back to that discussion, but uh, St. John used the exact word that Heraclitus had used in Ephesus 500 years before when he said, uh, in the beginning, there was Logos. And Logos is with God and Logos is God. And this is the beginning, uh, this is the beginning of a meditation that would take about 300 years to find out what, what did he mean by that? Uh, you add the word son to it when you say Jesus is the son of God and you try and put all these pieces together and you come up with something called the Trinity. The Trinity is not something you could have figured out, Greeks could have figured out on their own. It, had, mm -hmm. it, it is revelation. You cannot mandate faith. You, you have to freely accept, you freely uh, adopt faith as the proper response to revelation, which comes outside of you. Faith is proper to uh, the church. The church is the guardian of the deposit of faith, and it has to be voluntary. You can't coerce faith. So, but if you are a member of the church, the church can demand obedience. And the state can demand obedience to rational principles. And the fundamental rational principle that is the underlying foundation of the social order is morality or practical reason. This is not so. So we, we've reached a, 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 an impasse in our culture here uh, because we have something called the separation of church and state. Uh, and it's been manipulated uh, basically to say that anytime a Catholic brings up a moral issue like abortion, he's immediately mm -hmm. disqualified from having right. anything to say and should not be appointed to the Supreme Court. End of discussion. Yeah. <laughs> which is what we're going through right now. Right. This is, this is, there is a, 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 a horrendous example of double standard and hypocrisy here because the same principle does not get applied to Jews. So uh, Amy Comey, Comey Barrett is supposed to replay, take the, the seat of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And the problem, according to the pundits, is Amy is going to impose her views, whereas Ruth never imposed her views. Well, wait a minute. Why do we have gay marriage? Mm -hmm. Is that uh, is gay marriage and abortion, sodomy and abortion are two Jewish sacraments, and they were imposed on us by Jewish members of the Supreme Court, in particular, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So I don't know whether that clarifies the, the, uh, the, yeah. the question, uh, but. Yeah. So I want to, I want to latch onto something you said. And so you talked about human reason and you talked about, uh, you know, the, the, the state can command obedience within a certain um, within certain bounds. And so I think with this whole coronavirus thing, you know, we've all seen our lives just completely uh, gone into upheaval, right? With, with all of the shutdowns and, um, and, and, and something I've talked about on my show is th this transfer of wealth from main street businesses that, that sort of rely on our sort of day-to-day -day interactions uh, transmitting to uh, things like Amazon, right. Where, where they can, they can operate even, even when we're all just stuck in our homes. Um, 
and, and we're starting to see news articles coming out, you know, kind of admitting in a sense that all of this lockdown stuff was uh, not even not even accorded with the with the quote unquote science. Right. And so no. what I what I was hoping is that what you could clarify is that, you know, where, how do we, how are we supposed to draw that line with obedience to the state? I mean, how, how are we supposed to know when, um, you know, when we're asked to, when we're being asked to do something reasonable, I mean, how does that, uh, how does that fit into this discussion about uh, uh, using our reason? Um, and there seems to be a tension there between reason and obedience. Yes. And the main reason for that tension is that reason at some point, uh, probably in the 18th century, became synonymous with science. Mm. And science is something is one of those conversation stoppers. Okay, so if you if you say science shows that, then uh, I have to just throw up my hands and accept absolutely what you say. Right. Which is exactly what happened here with the covid crisis. We had designated scientists, people like Anthony Fauci, who has actually a horrendous track record when it comes to what he's actually done with AIDS, for example, and promoting Mm. AZT and killing homosexuals. But he is a designated scientist, at which point we have to accept what he says. Now, this violates this violates our government. Uh, this violates everything that we know about government because he's not an elected official. It's elected mm-hmm. officials who have to make decisions. And uh, uh, Attorney General is one of the few people who has brought this up. Okay, the scientists can advise, but he can't rule mm-hmm. because he doesn't. he's not a, an elected official. Well, that has been completely uh, obfuscated. And so it's, so, it's, so it's an muddy. abuse of, of power by by the elected officials because they're they're sort of uh just rescinding their own power and 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 putting putting all of their wisdom to the side and just allowing a scientist to make all the decisions uh well then i'd I'd say i'd say the opposite especially with democratic politicians like uh, gretchen whitmer in uh in uh, michigan Mm. uh they basically use the scientist thing as an excuse to impose a completely draconian lockdown on the state Uh, One which, by the way, has just been overturned by the Supreme Court of the state of Michigan, uh, uh, using scientists to abrogate the political uh, uh, process and uh, by by basically making herself de facto dictator of the state of Michigan. The Democrats have done this because what it is has been weaponized as a tool to prevent Donald Trump from getting elected in in the fall or a month from now. I see. And so do you see any kind of, uh, I mean, with, with Trump, it seemed like in uh, March, April, May, at least that time frame, where, you know, every day he was putting Burks and Fauci up in front of the press corps, uh, in front of the national media, and just saying, here, here's, here's the people that are supposed to be giving you the information. You know, it, it, to me, it seemed like, you know, he, hey, he can have his opinion. He's just trying to say, hey, look, here's the information you wanted. And, and, you know, so, I mean, do you do you have any do you see any problem with him doing that or uh, do you think that of was of course there's a bounds? problem because, because Fauci represents the deep state and right. the deep season. He doesn't represent medicine. He represents big pharma, deep gates, all of this crowd mm-hmm. were determined to drive Trump from office from the beginning of his administration. So Trump was uh, what should I say? Naive, stupid. Right. Right. Just uh, uh, like, who's the go-to? I can, I can imagine him in some meeting. Who's the go-to guy for viruses? Well, right. Anthony Fauci. Okay, bring him in. Right. And, right. So, okay. uh, and over the course of this period of time, you can just look at Trump's face. Watch his face when Fauci is speaking. And you 
realized, hey, uh, this is not science. Yeah. This guy is campaigning <laughs> against me. I better right. get rid of him. And he did. He was smart yeah. enough. It, give, give Trump credit. I mean, he, he's smart enough mm. to realize when people are out to do him in. He's good at, he's good at that. Right. Okay, so I, I, I think that, that clarifies something here. And I think it helps us understand, you know, the, the place of governance. I mean, so, I mean, I guess we, we, we're often told that, you know, in the past, in the medieval era, for instance, that, you know, that we had these, these uh, oppressive governments that were just uh, clamping down on us all the time. Um, but yet it seems like the, the system we have now is much more uh, invasive and, and much less sort of committed to this idea of subsidiarity um, than, than those previous systems. And so it seems like what you're saying is there's, there's this, you know, all the, the, the scientific stuff is just an excuse to, to sort of further clamp down on people in ways that are at odds with uh, sort of the Catholics view of, of the way the state should operate uh, with respect to yes. citizens. Yes. Uh, and also with uh, obviously with representative government. Right. So what, what happened? I mean, if you read, uh, 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 my book, uh, Libido Dominandi, Sexual Liberation and Political Control, and uh, it's the kind of the companion piece, which is The Slaughter of Cities, Urban Renewal is Ethnic Cleansing. You'll get a history of uh, social engineering. Mm. And social engineering is completely antithetical to representative government. Uh, and uh, this is obvious now, but uh, most people don't understand what social engineering is. It's a covert, uh, a, a covert, uh, manipulation of the political process to circumvent popular sovereignty. Hmm. And it's all it invariably uses the, uh, the term expert when you get to something like urban renewal, or uh, it's the manipulation of sexual passion as a way of overthrowing your ability to rule yourself, uh, which is in turn the basis of uh, uh, democratic rule. If you can't rule yourself, then you can't rule. Uh, uh, you can't be expected to participate in governmental rule, right. and so it, it, it. Both of these things undermine popular sovereignty, which is one of is the pillar, is the foundation of what Americans believe as government. Right. Well, so I want to kind of shift gears and talk more about uh, the the way we're we're interacting with the church in these days, right? And so um, we're we as Catholics, right, we, we have a certain um, responsibility to be obedient to uh, uh, the church and to our local bishop, to our local priest, to, to the Holy Father. And I think this is something that is, you know, as, as a former Protestant, I converted in, in 2007 uh, when I was in college. And, you know, this, this is a, a hurdle, I think, in a lot of ways for a lot of Protestants. It's kind of a, it's a sort of something about their, um, their attitude towards life. And maybe part of it has to do with sort of America and the revolution, you know, and, and sort of uh, anti George the third and all that sort of thing. But there seems to be a sort of attitude of, of, I don't have to obey anyone except for God. Right. But then there's a, then there's a sort of a, well, then how do you know what he's teaching you? Right. Uh, you all just, just come up with this in your head. Um, and so as Catholics, of course, we have this sort of physical uh, reality of the papacy, right? We, he's the, the vicar of Christ on earth. And so we have a way uh, through normal human means of, of understanding what should, we should believe. And yet it seems as though today we have a lot of people who are uh, increasingly distrustful of uh, uh, popes, especially JP2, um, uh, in some cases Benedict, um, and, and certainly uh, Pope Francis. 
And they talk a lot about the, the sort of rupture of, of Vatican II and all these sorts of things. And so how do, how do we understand sort of our place in obedience? And, and especially with respect to this idea of, of reason, right? We, we're human right. beings endowed with reason. So where, where does that all fit in with the church? Yes, good, good point. Uh, the main vehicle for hurting uh, the faith of Catholics when it comes to economic issues uh, has been conservatism. There's, there's no question about it. It, it came back with a vengeance uh, with uh, the Reagan-Thatcher era, and it, it created a whole network of uh, think tanks and, uh, and uh, organizations that were basically created by um, uh, capitalist money to subvert the church's teaching. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them is uh, the Acton Institute. Okay, this is Calvinist money from Western Michigan. It's money from the Atlas Foundation. And it was uh, basically mobilized by a homosexual uh, by the name of uh, Robert Sirica. He was notorious as a homosexual on the West Coast. Uh, first man to perform a gay marriage in the United States of America. And then he had his uh, come to the altar moment uh, in San Francisco in the 70s when he converted to libertarian ideology, libertarian economics. Uh, Austrian school economics in particular, started the Acton Institute. And then his job is basically to police the Catholic Church and inform us whenever the ch church uh, deviates from the, the conservative party line. Mm, right. He did this in the New York Times when he said that uh, rerum novarum, uh, rerum novarum's uh, uh, prescriptions on the working no longer apply. Oh, wait a minute. Wait wow. a minute. I, I mean, I know you got that Roman collar. You always wear that Roman collar to cover mm. over your past. But uh, who made you super pope? Mm. Now, now you're contradicting an encyclical because your backers, the money men behind, uh, they don't like to pay a decent. So it's obvious. Sirico, mm. I've said it before. I always get in a little bit of trouble when I say Sirico is a coke sucker. <laughs> okay, we're yeah. talking about Koch brothers money corrupting these these operations. And uh, what the Acton Institute does is give you the Koch brothers version of economics. Mm. Okay, that's an example. It, I could give you other examples. George Weigel, uh, in this famous, absolutely famous article he wrote when Ratzinger came out, when Pope Benedict XVI came out with his encyclical on uh, Catholic social teaching. He, he says, you could tell some of these passages are written in red and some of them are written in gold. And the red passages are communism and the gold passages are basically what agrees with uh, my and Michael Novak's theories about economics. He didn't quite put it that way, but this is, he said this. I mean, so mm. I, I started asking, I started referring to him as George Magic Glasses Weigel. He's got magic glasses. You remember them? I don't know. Maybe you're too, you're too young to remember this, but you used <laughs> to get these things in cereal boxes oh, yeah, and you okay. put them on and suddenly all this magic writing would show up. Well, he's got magic glasses. Right. This is preposterous. This yeah. is absolutely preposterous. And we know that when George Weigel says this, this is foundation money talking. When when Sirica says this, this is foundation money talking to corrupt uh, and and marginalize authentic like teaching. Okay, now that's one side. Now there's another side to this equation, and it's called Marxism. And Marxism can infiltrate the Catholic Church as well. It's not a problem in America, but it was a problem in South America, and it was known as liberation theology. Mm -hmm. And those of us 
who hate capitalism uh, are sympathetic to this attempt, but it's wrong because uh, a Catholic social teaching is neither socialism nor capitalism. All you have to do is read Rerum Navarum or read Quadragesimo Anno and you will understand this perfectly. Yeah. Okay. So now we've got to eat. It's more complicated. I mean, I was happy when Pope uh, uh, Francis uh, became Pope. Okay. Uh, I, I, I went to Rome. I talked to the people in the State Department. I talked about, you know, the church is not proclaiming the gospel. Okay. Uh, talked about various places. I places it's not proclaiming is in term usury it's not talking about usury anymore mm. and it opens yeah. the field to people like michael hoffman who says that the church abandoned its teaching on usury usury is no longer a sin that's preposterous yeah. that's like saying murder is no longer a sin it's right. always a sin right okay by definition okay so uh the the you know that what i said uh made it into laudate C. And uh, the Pope then talked about it in Philadelphia, went to New York, and he used the U word at a, at a United Nations meeting. This is yeah. a big triumph. Yeah. Okay, talked about usury. This is significant. Okay, but we have to keep on message here. And the problem here is that the message is being uh, uh, diluted here. Now, I was happy uh, that somebody from South America became Pope because the papacy under Ratzinger just came to, to be too closely associated with the American empire. Mm. That was the problem with John Paul II and the anti-communist crusade. There was too close of an association. It was detrimental to spreading the gospel. Well, now we have uh, what we would say is the opposite, but we still have dangers here. Sure. We have a danger here now that the, that, that the Jesuit understanding of reality is going to trump Catholicism. And by Jesuit, I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Jesuits. Mm. Uh, they were heroic figures. Read my book, Baron Metal, about Paraguay and Quebec and what they did there. Paraguay, the reductions in Paraguay were the only alternative to slavery and usury in the new world. And it could have created a different universe if it hadn't been suppressed by the suppression of the Jesuits. So I'm, I'm on board with the Jesuits, but the modern Jesuits are into something else. Just uh, talk about James Martin uh, mm -hmm. and the promotion of sodomy, the Jesuit order to promote sodomy. They're also promoting a kind of uh, a distortion. Now I'm, I'm going, going to go out on a limb here. Okay. Because I have only read about uh, Tutti Fratelli in uh, articles. And I'm assuming that the articles are accurate. I haven't had the time to go through and look at the actual passages in the encyclical, but I seem to remember something uh, to the Pope talking about immigration in this thing, saying somehow that there is a universal destination of all goods on the earth. The universal destination is mankind. That's true. All of this wealth creation is for mankind as a whole and not for uh, individuals. Okay. That being said, we have to nuance this by saying that God, uh, in his wisdom, created nations as well. And these nations, uh, you can only have a nation if you have borders. If there are no borders, there is no nation. Why do we have borders? We have borders to protect the people of the nation against war or uh, modern warfare, uh, uh, off, which is oftentimes weaponized migration of the sort we have seen in Europe already. 
Right. Okay. Pesh, Heinrich Pesh, I'm talking, he is the, 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 the spiritus movens behind Baron Metal, my book on the conflict between history, history. Of I, yeah, I, I talk about him a lot and, and I, I would recommend that the listeners read Baron Metal as well. Yeah. So I, I talk about Pesh all the time. Uh, Thank and you. I, I actually read uh, I, I, one of your articles from 2005 by Rupert Ederer, who uh, he was reviewing Tom Woods's book, uh, The Church in right. the Market. So I, I did yes. a reading of that for my show last week. So yes, that's very good. Tom never got over it. He cried over the phone to me. I said, <laughs> you know, he said, I went to Harvard with your son. Why did you do this to me? I said, Tom, take it like a man. Okay. And, yeah. and listen to what he said and stop crying in your beer. Well, he right, didn't, right. he went on to win a $50,000 prize from mm. the subverters of Catholic teaching yeah. uh, down in Alabama, the von Mises Institute. Mm -hmm. So he chose his path. Okay. God bless you, Tom. Uh, you want to be a Coke sucker? That's your business. Okay. But we're dealing with a serious issue here because uh, Pesh clearly states that the nation is synonymous with the economy. Hmm. In other words, we have to talk about the national economy. The goal of that economy is the good of the people of that nation. You cannot go beyond the nation state when you're talking about an economy. He is emphatic, Pesh is emphatic in talking this way. He says, as soon as you start talking, globalizing here and saying these truths are true about the entire world as if there's one world economy, all you're doing is playing into the hands of the oligarchs who manipulate this to get cheap labor. And that is exactly, Pesh said this in the 1920s, that's exactly what we have seen in the United States with outsourcing. Okay, the wrecking mm -hmm. of the American economy uh, by the, the, uh, the leverage buyout kings from Wall Street who buy up these things, outsource the, 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 outsource the production, and then steal all the money, steal the wages from the, from the worker. T uh, Tucker Carlson, to his credit, did, talked about exactly this with uh, the story of Cabela's in uh, Sydney, Nebraska. That's exactly right. what happened there. Yeah, exactly what that. happened. Wrecked the economy. Now, this is a sin against the people of the United States of America because those people are supposed to be the beneficiaries of the United States economy. Mm -hmm. We cannot talk about this unless we talk about national borders. If you start talking about internationalism, all you're doing is playing into the hands of the oligarchs who want cheap labor. And this is my suspicion. This is what struck me where that statement where the Pope seemed, again, I'm going on a limb here, yeah. but it's, he seemed to be saying that uh, since there's a universal destination of goods, everyone in the world has a right to a particular economy. That's not true. Mm. I see. So, I mean, you people of Honduras and Guatemala, they have a right to have be the beneficiaries of their economies, but they do not have the right to be the beneficiaries of the United States economy because it's a different country. And if right. you obscure that, if you obscure that, you're going to play it right into the hands of the globalists. And I, and I've, I've, I'm, I'm trying to carefully read it and I want to do, I want to do a little bit of discussion of it. Cause I think, I think of course that the, there's certain sectors of the Catholic media who uh, seem to make money on nothing but scandal. And I, and I think, you know, to me, uh, I mean, you know, I guess a little bit of credentialism or whatever. I, I'm an economist. And so I, I feel like I can, 
I can speak to some of the things that he says in there. But I mean, early on in the encyclical, he, he definitely says that, you know, on, on the issue of immigration, that, you know, Europe, Europe should balance the, the duty that the government has to its citizens against its, you know, duty to help refugees and things like that. And so, I mean, to me, the fact that he's saying that there's some kind of balance that has to be struck, well, okay, well, you know, it's not within that's his authority true. to decide what that balance is, but- That's, that's true. Right. You should, yeah, you yeah. should balance this, sure. obviously. But the question is, how do you balance it? Right. And you don't balance it by pretending that there are no borders and having hordes right. of people. This, this, the slaughter of cities is about weaponized migration. Right. It didn't get played that way because it was people from one part of the United States coming to another part of the United States, but mm. it was weaponized. The black sharecroppers in the in the South were sent up to cities like Chicago to ethnically cleanse the, 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 the Catholic neighborhoods on the South side of Chicago. I'm the mm. only guy who said that's true. Read the book and check the footnotes. I think it's an irrefutable statement. And, and I'm saying that those people the Lithuanians in Marquette Park, for example, had a right to defend themselves. Mm. That's not the current wisdom because right. the bishops were so um, obsessed with the, the racial conflict, they issued a statement in 57 and they said things like, Negroes are the children of God. Well, who's disputing that? That's completely beside the point. The question is, do these Negroes have a right to ethnically cleanse the Lithuanians? I'm saying no, mm. Mm. no, that's not the case. Well, and I think I think so with with the Pope's statements in in, the, in this recent encyclical for Duty. So, uh, I mean, to me, it seems like you know he he's simply saying that you need to balance those two things. But it seems like it's I, I feel as though he's he's admitting that it's not within his uh, competent authority to determine how how those things should be balanced, right? I mean, that's you know the specifics of how that's balanced. It's supposed to be done by the the, the sovereign authority of that country, and so you know Germany should be prudent. And he's he's advising them to be prudent, and he's saying that you know we should uh, we, we should care for others, and we should uh, you know treat others with charity and all of that. But he's also admitting, I think, that that there is there's obviously the, the case that uh, you know that, that the national government has to have its own citizens in mind as well. Right. The the main responsibility of the Hungarian government is the welfare of the Hungarian people. Right. Right. OK. And 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 uh, if there's a, a, a group of people that are going to overwhelm their their culture and right. destroy it and, and we know that it's being weaponized, well, they have a duty to defend them, defend the Hungarian people against this weaponized migration. Right. What's missing here it, it, from the, all of the talk about immigration here is do you realize I mean, do you recognize that it can be weaponized? Does, has that thought ever crossed your mind? Now, I know the sure. people, the people who are the poor, the poor guys from Honduras who are walking up through the jungle along railroad tracks. They're not they're not the, the villains in this story right. in the same way that the blacks from South Carolina or Mississippi. They weren't the villains either. Right. I mean, the villain was at the Ford Foundation. The Ford right. Foundation was weaponizing this thing. The villain in Philadelphia was Reverend Leon Sullivan, who was working with John J. McCloy to uh, get rid of Catholics. Right. So right. We, we have to have some type of nuance and some type of sophistication in, in talking about what's happening here. But I, I, don't, I just see it missing from this discussion. Yeah, right. Well, I appreciate your time, and I, I think I think you're you're clarifying a lot of things, and I think that that your your work and and uh, in, 
in these books is, is helpful to, for us to understand the, the framing. And especially I think that last point where, you know, we, we're constantly getting put into the weeds that, oh, well, if you want, a, you know, if you want our, our Southern border to be, uh, you know, managed in some way other than just completely open, well, then you, you must hate people from South America. You must hate people from Central America. And, and it has nothing to do with that. Um, and, and so I think, I think that's, a, that's, a, that's a great point that, that is, uh, is right. not made enough. Right. And let's let's get to the source of the matter. Why are the Mexicans coming here? Is it because we wrecked their economy with NAFTA by mm-hmm. by flooding that company uh, country with cheap corn? Right. So that the, the Mexican farmer simply could not compete. Right. Uh, he could not compete with that low price of subsidized corn from the United States. That's the source of the problem here. Right. Let's get to the source of it. Uh, and the oligarchs always like conflict and they love this. The, they love racial conflict. And they love this migration conflict because it gets to distract everyone from the real movers and shakers behind the scenes. And, and, and you could tell, I mean, early on when, when Trump came into office, I remember the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the fact that he wouldn't sign that. I mean, people were just absolutely in arms over this. And then his, his attempts to kind of reform NAFTA to some extent, I, you know, maybe that made things worse in terms of, uh, you know, a citizen of Mexico. But, uh, but, but you could tell there's just so much concern over this trade stuff. And it's like, you know, maybe we don't need to be getting so much free stuff from China, you know, from their slave labor. I mean, to me, this is very it's clear. It's wrecked to the economy. And now uh, yeah. what we're seeing is it's wrecking the economy of India, which is mm. positions itself as the cheap labor capital of the world. Right. Those, those, uh, the, the outsourcing of clothing manufacturing has had a catastrophic effect on, first of all, the United States don't produce any shoes, don't produce mm. any clothing anymore. It's right. all done in India. Well, if you don't produce anything, you don't have any money. Uh, wait, right. wait a minute. We woke up. The Indians woke up two years ago. Wait a minute. Uh, Forever 21, American Eagle, mm. Gap. All of these middle, uh, middle, uh, rank, middle uh, 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 level, middle level uh, garment manu- uh, retailers all went belly up yeah. because nobody had the money. The yeah. only victor here was Old Navy, and yeah. Old Navy is the bottom of the barrel. Yeah, cheap okay? stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so hap- So what happens when uh, Forever Twenty One? All these things go belly up. Well, the Indians get laid off. Mm. So they suffered. It, it boomeranged on them as well. That's right. a, a, a completely failed strategy. India has proven that cheap labor will never succeed. Right. It's right. awful. Well, I appreciate your time on and, and discussing all this with us. And, and I, I will definitely link to your uh, your website, although I think there's probably some overlap in our in, in my audience with with your uh, much larger audience, I'm sure. Uh, and so I appreciate your time. Thank you, Dr. Jones. And, and uh, I hope you have a great week. Thank you. My pleasure.